I, I feel like I'm trying to say I have no idea in the smartest way possible. And I'm like failing utterly because because this hyper performative puritanism, this you're with us or you're against us. And those are the lines sweaty. That that attitude is is not only is it antithetical to like the 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 nature of coalition building. I mean, it's it's rejects everything that coalition building is supposed to be about. But it's really unproductive when it comes to moving people over to your side. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to Society in Question, where we take a nuanced exploration of the biological, social, and cultural forces that are shaping the human condition. Today, my guest is Vosh, a self-described left-wing YouTuber known for his advocacy for libertarian market socialism and for his debates that he often does with other YouTubers. Now, truth be told, before going into this conversation, I didn't actually know all that much about Vosh. I had previously been asking around um, for anybody who was obviously a farther left individual, somebody who might be considered even a radical leftist, but who would also be willing to engage with me without hostility if I was to challenge their ideas. Vosh was one of the people who was most commonly recommended to me, but I was also given a lot of warnings about his controversies that he's been a part of, and was basically made to believe that he would ultimately be a bad faith interlocutor. With all that in mind, I I went into this conversation expecting a bit of hostility. And in reality, I met nothing of the sort. In fact, this was probably one of the more interesting uh, interviews slash discussions that I've had out of the dozens upon dozens of episodes that I've done with many world-renowned thinkers. This is because whether you love him or hate him, Vosh is incredibly articulate, and he does seem to bring a great deal of forethought to his dialogues. And even though one of his most popular videos is him making fun of and explaining how dangerous centrism is, I found Vosh to be actually incredibly open-minded to critiquing both the left and the right with a pretty measured objectivity. In the end, it feels to me like Vosh is genuinely interested in actual humanistic progress, and not just the zero-sum tribalism of the culture wars that dominates a lot of these dialogues. And so for that, I'm very thankful that he took the time uh, to have this conversation. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dig into those very thoughts. Everyone, please welcome to Society in Question, Vosh. A good place to start since, you know, I've, I've watched a fair number of your videos. I know you a bit but there's a lot of ideas that you explore um, that go all over the place. So I think a good foundation would really be just to hear you maybe describe what you think your stances are politically and kind of some of the key things that you're interested in promoting in the world right now. Yeah, well, I call myself a libertarian socialist, which I think is, if anything, redundant because socialism's roots were sort of the origins of libertarianism. It was originally a left-leaning ideology. It's just the terms changed with time. Um, But yeah, with regards to the ideas that I'm concerned with promoting, they're essentially uh, democracy, autonomy, um, progressivism, and uh, economic liberation. I I, I think that uh, liberating the workplace, making it democratic, is in many ways analogous to the global revolutions that made our political systems democratic. And I think that the benefits we could accrue from that would be equally significant. Yeah, why do you think so many people push back right now against the idea of socialism as a term? Like when somebody tells me they want to free us from economic 
wage slavery, which to me has always been quite horrible. Like I've always hated waking up to go to jobs that I despise uh, and it's not a fulfilling way to live uh, and it sucks being poor. Why, why, why do people think that that's a bad uh, solution? Well, I think that a lot of it is because socialism hasn't had the best representatives. Uh, socialism is very appealing to uh, uh, the working class, at least it has been historically. So I think that a lot of bad movements have taken the label of socialism and used it to run among, you know, I would never describe China or the USSR as socialist, not in a million years. So, I mean, they fail to uphold even the basic premises of like simple Marxian socialism. So I, I would, I understand we've had sort of bad cheerleaders in that respect. And I think a lot of it also, especially here in the US, is that um, people are very tied to the hope that they may one day win the lottery. Being a big successful business owner is a statistical anomaly. It's guaranteed to happen for some, incredibly unlikely to happen to you. So when people talk about like democratizing the workplace or, you know, taxing the rich, so often people of lower middle income will get offended by that because they imagine that they're the next ones up, the temporarily embarrassed millionaire archetype. Of course, mathematically, this just isn't the case. And it's a bad argument, even if it was. I mean, imagine arguing against political democracy because of the chance that you might one day become a warlord who conquers like a fiefdom and then be, you know, becomes like the lord like okay is, is that a freedom worth preserving at the expense of the peasantry probably not right and do you think there's a misunderstanding of how much is working against people like would you be more open to capitalism let's say if it was more uh, fair, more free market where there wasn't such a tilted playing field? Like, do you think there are a lot of benefits there in the in the market and in capitalism uh, if things weren't so corrupted, basically? I think that there are elements of a market, you know, market economies that are totally defensible. Uh, I think that mixed markets have historically proven to be the most effective in terms of the allocation of resources. The issue is that when it comes to market economies, they are mathematically guaranteed to be unfair. There is no series of regulations that could compensate for the fact that, for instance, if you are wealthy, you have more of a shot at making your business ventures work than a poor person. Poor people are born to poor parents. That means that a lot of the likelihood of your success will be determined at birth by your zip code with very little influence on your part. There are always exceptions to this, of course, but take a look at the people who lead Forbes 500. You're not going to find an equal demographic representation of every race and background in this country. You're going to find that many of them are essentially alumni of that position. And that's how all hierarchical positions have worked, from the tribal chieftains of yore to feudal kings and lords and aristocrats to the modern day capitalist economy heredity makes a big difference and that's the opposite of a meritocracy you, you mentioned there that it's something that's always happened and i'm a my my big thing that i love is evolution evolutionary psychology and when i think about you know as much as it's kind of a left at field in some circles but uh you know it really suggests that hierarchy is really hardwired into us uh because of serotonin because of um, numerous factors, dopamine, oxytocin, all of these things. There's a natural proclivity in the in the human animal to organize by rank and to feel uh, this challenge and to strive to ascend, I guess, a hierarchy. Do you think we can really overcome that natural human inclination and, and form into something that's more of a flat hierarchy? Or is I, that really too against human nature? 
I think that um, it is human nature to be competitive, but it's also yeah. human nature to be cooperative. If humans were purely competitive, we never would have built civilization. The whole agricultural revolution was predicated on the idea that people would have to work together to a common goal. And those competitive drives can be channeled in more productive ways, you know, like uh, there's plenty of competitive uh, fervor in, say, for example, high school classrooms. But I think that in many ways, that fervor is channeled in a way through the grading structure and the way we teach kids uh, that encourages them to improve at their craft. You see this a lot in like the arts as well. I think that competition is delightful. I think it's a wonderfully human thing and we surpass animals in our capacity for enjoying competition. To them, it's just survival. For us, I mean, it's something more than that. But I don't think this is anathema to socialism. If anything, I think the two um, uh, uh, cooperate because in the world we live in now, most people never get a shot at being competitive. You can be a very talented person and through economic circumstances out of your control, you can be relegated to working the grocery store checkout line for your entire life. And that might not be your fault. What about injury or illness in a system where medical care is gatekept behind expense? There are a million things that could affect you or your life that prevent you from achieving your competitive desires. The flatter the starting ground, which means invariably democratization, a strong welfare state, the more likely competition is to be fair. That's what we like about sports so much. We like seeing people, uh, nothing but by the grit, you know, them succeeding based on that. I think that's a delightful thing. What is the role of the state in, in that future scenario that you'd like to move us towards? Like how much uh, state power is there? How centralized are we? Um, there are some elements of society that I think should be highly centralized, mostly uh, the types of industries that cannot work well within a market. So my mind to this would be stuff like um, utilities, you know, like ISPs, electricity, water. We already do this. We don't have 27 different water pipes running to every house. Of course, we have a centralized control uh, sent out to private bidders, but we can do better than that. Uh, also with healthcare. Um, because it's an inelastic market, it seems like market forces serve only to hurt uh, not only competition, but the consumer. With stuff like that, I think the government could do a better job than what we have now. When it comes to the rest of stuff in our society, though, it's not so much to me about government control as it is about public control. The government is theoretically a voice for the people in a democratic system, but we know it doesn't really work like that. The government is at best a loose, hollow echo of what the people might have wanted 20 years ago. And sometimes it can't even be that. So leave to the government what the government does best, which is decommodification, regulation, and massive social projects that no private enterprise could ever conduct. Space travel, maybe stuff like that. For the rest, we look towards uh, democratized institutions. For me, that would be a worker cooperative. You take the elements of the market that work, the competitive drive, the you know, the, the profit motive, and you channel them through a system that's more considerate to the needs of those who work there. With proper regulation, I think that'd be a really, really effective way of meeting some social needs we don't currently. Do you think that we are potentially too big, like in some ways for this to really work these days? Like, is the scale so massive that in order to really function, we need to hand off more power? Like when I think about these things, I think about it feels a little bit 
it feels like it would work best in a small community, like in the Dunbar's number of 150, where we're in small tribes and it's very easy to organize things this way. Or you have these very small villages. But when you're talking about 350 million people or a billion people in China's case, how do we do you think there are challenges there that make this a lot more impractical? There are undeniably challenges, um, though some of them, I think, might actually invite positive solutions. For example, sometimes economic efficiency doesn't actually make people happier. The, the big box stores, Walmart, what have you, they make things much cheaper. And that is lovely, you know, and there's value in that. But it is not lost on many people that the shopping districts of most American cities are functionally identical. Yeah. I live here in Seattle and one of my favorite places to go, God, everyone's favorite place to go is Pike Place Market because all of the businesses there, they can't be franchises. If you open a store there, that has to be the only one of that store, which means that everything there is unique. You'll never find a place like Pike Place anywhere outside of Seattle, maybe a return to cooperatives in at least some industries could revitalize something that America has been losing out on, which is local personalized business, places you go to where the people there know your name, you know their inventory, and you know that things are controlled at a approximately local level. Maybe not you know the owner, but at the very least, you know the people who work there. For other things, the necessities of commodity production, like big box stores, I think you can preserve those benefits through tiered co-ops. Say you have a location and that's a cooperative and the people there elect their manager, they vote for it. That manager's job, among other things, is to participate in sort of regional group of managers who then vote on larger business decisions. That way you have the simultaneous benefit of a local cooperative and you still know that if your guy is voting against your interests on the big scale, you can vote a new manager in. It's not perfect, but I think it's a fair sight better than what we have right now, which is, I mean, the Walmarts are essentially a dynasty. They're like mm. little family chain goes down and they might as well be aristocrats. Yeah. Do you think that's, does that tilt a little bit in your mind towards something like an, an anarcho-syndicalistic type setup? As yeah, you're talking it, about those, those co-op management levels, that's kind of where my mind went. It's inspired by it, yeah. Anarcho-syndicalism, the idea that you could pursue anarchism through the construction and maintenance of syndicates, it's predicated fundamentally on the idea that like, the relationship people have to their workplaces is a critical democratic element that it's almost the focal point of everything that operates in our society. We get removed from it, but that's kind of true. That's everything the Marxist idea, yeah. basically, right? Yeah. And the only, way, the only way we can talk right now is because the electric channels that are being run between our computers and the internet, all of it, all the time, everything that we do think, breathe, smell, touch, taste, feel, think, all of it constantly being maintained by billions of teeming workers all around the world. And we, we get lost in that. We just buy things and just have them here. I just have stuff on my desk. I don't know where any of this came from. Maybe a, a greater focus on the worker uh, instead of what we do now, which is a largely celebrity-driven culture. Maybe that would encourage a, a better relationship to our democracy. And what are the... Uh... Well, I know what the challenges are, I guess, but how do you feel about the role of like the right or less progressive minds in terms of bringing this world about? Like, obviously, there is a ton of tension right now, a ton of political polarization, a lot of Antifa versus Proud Boys. I mean, I'm down in Portland, so I, oh, you know, yeah. am, am surrounded by this tension quite often. Um, how do we reconcile that, you know, and to, to move towards that future, maybe 
get people on the right to be more open to it or maybe even get people on the left to be less hostile about moving in that direction or do we want to be less hostile about moving in that direction well the funny thing to me is that it seems like and this has happened before the right doesn't really make pro-capitalist arguments that much anymore when you look at how republican leaders speak they're always gesturing at something other than that they talk about how like globalists for example when, when we talk about globalism what we're talking about is capitalism here fundamentally market forces transcend borders that is a fact of the world you can't get over that so when they talk nationalism what they're hinting at is there is a group of elite coastal you know, uh, uh, liberal Hollywood type oligarchs. And they're the reason why the mom and pop stores are dead. And they're the reason why the factory jobs close down. Of course, this is bullshit. The existence of the oligopoly and the closure of these stores, these are all complicated, sometimes related, sometimes not forces, but they're signaling at something. And it's a frustration their voter base has with the economic reality of the world, a capitalist world. They just don't name the solution. Instead, they redirect. They say the reason why things are the way they are is immigration, which is objectively not the case. But that way you take people's animosity with the economic system and you channel it against an undesired social minority. This has been happening for 150 years in this country. I, or it's been earlier. It's been happening yeah. well beyond that. But it's ramped up more recently since the Industrial Revolution because because you see more of them now, Chinese, Irish, Italian immigrants, they come in and you don't have a job, Mr. White working man. And you think it's because of them, but it's not. It's because the, the people creating the, the, you know, the, the workplaces, the bourgeois, they are in an effort to obtain more money for themselves, cutting wages, then taking the only people who will accept those wages, who are fresh immigrants, and not opening up new jobs because to do so would cut into their margins. The money's still there. Immigrants didn't take it. They were taken from you by the only people with the power to. The more that message spreads in the right, I think the easier it'll be to move them over to, well, something, something approximating what Marx would call class consciousness or an awareness of your relationship to the economic uh, means of production. Yeah. So you mentioned there kind of the disenfranchisement of the working class and, and the frustrations that they have. And, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself a, a centrist. I have pretty obvious left biases on a lot of things, but I've always I think I've gravitated towards a lot of centrist ideas and I know you're not fond of that, but I think there's a oh, lot. Well, I think I'm really, I think there's a lot to be said for bringing that unifying force together. And I, I wonder, do you think like there's a problem maybe in the approach that we are taking on the left right now in a way that kind of others, the working class on the right, rather than inviting them in to realize that we, that we are, in a class struggle and it shouldn't be something where we're fighting amongst ourselves kind of in this demagoguery like way that the elite benefit from yeah this is this is an enormously difficult question i'm trying to think um to, to my mind the difficulty is appropriately advocating for the right solutions without giving up on the positions you hold dear you could you could distinguish this between empirical problems and subjective problems so to me subjective problems when viewed from the right would be like social justice issues you know mm -hmm. like black lives matter trans people using bathrooms stuff like that now and perhaps i speak haughtily here but i believe this these are not real problems they're 
pumped up by the media. The media cycle constantly drives on and on about X and Y happening, but then they just move on. Critical race theory, the ivermectin stuff. These feel like these constant media booms and busts promoted by the right to get people scared of this issue or another. In my mind, this is an attempt to prevent class consciousness. It's really difficult to focus on why your life as a, say, right-wing middle-class person feels like it's getting worse, even though the GDP keeps climbing up, when you keep getting told the reason why is because of immigrants, you know? It, it's, it's tough to fixate on that. The problem that I have is that oftentimes including the right on economic discussion involves taking off the table a defense for progressive issues. Or in more pragmatic terms, the line is always this, you know? We can get what you want, why don't you just give up on X? give up on trans issues, black issues, feminism, abortion, whatever. And that to me is unacceptable because given historical precedent, it seems like it's often a Faustian bargain. You lose the progressive rights, but you don't get anything economically. It's why a lot of people on the right will talk favorably about people like Tucker Carlson, right? Like, you know, he's this big, they talk about him like he's an anti-capitalist, you know, but he's not. He's a millionaire himself who listens to a billionaire, Murdoch, and does whatever he's told to. He religiously propagates all of the class, anti-class consciousness stuff that you would get from any other conservative outlet. He just occasionally gestures at like the elites. But some people, that's enough. Like, oh, we need to get this base of people. My question is, how do we get people to realize class consciousness in a way which also gets them to realize they've been withheld from it because of their fixation on these issues like trans bathroom bills or whatever. And that's what I like to focus on. The, the question should be, you know, why are you focusing on trans bathroom bills? Why are you focusing on BLM? Why You're really telling me there could be a better world for us economically and you would drop it just because you don't want to move over on these social issues? Like move to me and then we build the bridge or at the very least, a tower upwards next to each other. Um, it's just a fear that I have. There are people yeah. who will disingenuously try to be like, yeah, just drop the progressive stuff and then we'll then we'll have socialism. But they're not really pushing for socialism. They're trying to get left-leaning people to drop the progressive stuff, you know? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I've been critiqued before for being extra harsh on the left. And I think part of the reason I'm extra harsh on the left is being on the left. I really, really genuinely want them to succeed in most cases. But I'm concerned about the approaches we're taking because I do see this divisiveness kind of being um, driven into the conversation in a way that I think loses our ability to recognize the class issue in favor of really just kind of this desire to fight and get out this aggression. And mm -hmm. I wonder, how do you feel about the approach that we are taking right now on the left pretty commonly where there's a lot of focus on, you know... There's terms like white fragility and you know white privilege and all of these things, and, and they're useful terms to describe phenomenon that I do think take place. But we we use them as weapons, not as as tools to help people learn. And and we use a lot of cancel culture and a lot of like Antifa violence. You know, is not uncommon. Proud boys definitely stir their own shit up. But it feels like the left right now is really focused on this very like aggressive type of activism in a way that I think pushes away potential allies who could help us upvert the class system. 
or undermine mm -hmm. the class system. Do you think that that's true? No, I, I think that's totally true. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's really about how you approach these issues, and it's about recognizing. Michael Brooks had a saying for this. He, he, he was a yeah, he's uh, he's gone now, but um, he said, you know, be 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 kind to the individual and harsh on the system. Mm. I try to think of, and some people may find this condescending, but from my worldview, this is true. People on the right are victims of their own worldview on economic and progressive issues. There are plenty of right-leaning people who, because of their positions on gender issues or race or economics, are wounded themselves, from my perspective at least, unable to see perhaps a better solution. And they keep getting you know, hornswoggled by these politicians and demagogues who are selling them every, every solution but the one that'll work. So I look at that and I do feel sympathy. And I think the, the right way to approach that then would be, there's this attitude I try to take when I debate people, and I debate a lot of people, you know, and it's, I hate your ideas, I despise them, but you are a person, yeah. and you go, you're beyond the idea, the idea is just, it is, is just electrical patterns in your brain, you aren't your ideas, I'm not my ideas, we're people beyond that, if you could drop that, or, or God, even move a little, like, give me, give me something, you know, we can work off that. And it's funny, because I, I simultaneously have this reputation, depending on who you talk to, as being really hard on the right, or going easy on them all the time. It's I feel like, I don't, I don't know which is the more fair characterization, but I always try to give people an out, even with the farthest right people. I've had people in my community who used to be neo-Nazis come on to talk about their experiences. I don't think being an ex-neo-Nazi has any more of a mark on your character than being like an ex-liberal in my space. You're just people and people mm -hmm. change their minds. That's the attitude the left needs to adopt because this hyper-performative puritanism, this you're with us or you're against us and those are the lines sweaty, that that attitude is is not only is it antithetical to like the 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 nature of coalition building. I mean, it's it's rejects everything that coalition building is supposed to be about. But it's really unproductive when it comes to moving people over to your side. Great civil rights leaders in the past didn't do that. MLK did not adopt that approach. Even people like the Black Panthers or Malcolm X, their attitude was more of a we 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 bring hate to those who hate us. But we are all brothers in a spirit against capitalism, you know, like mm. you can drop this if you want. We're we can move past it. It's on you. That's a good idea. Do, do you have any thoughts about how we kind of start to reel back that that approach that the left is taking then? Like we have I feel like we have so much momentum and the tribalism that's obviously empowered by things like social media and the reality tunnels that we're living within and this fear, honestly, of. Uh, I think the fear of being alone and being rejected is driving a lot of this, right? Where people want to get into groups that make them feel safe and accepted and give their life meaning. And like they're fighting for something because it is such a broken economical system that they are desperate for something that isn't so alienating and something that does give them purpose. And that's so, there's so many things pushing us in that direction. How do we then say, all right, but like slow down, hold on, this approach isn't maybe the right one because then that starts to reek of the MLK thing of like the moderate liberal or like the centrist is, you know, making space for uh, or or giving cover to people on the right who are doing bad things or have bad intentions. How do yeah. we How do we pull that left maybe a little bit more center without being enabling to really 
kind of uh, malicious forces on the right. Yeah, because you, you you do never want to whitewash. I mean, the ideas of a lot of these groups are monstrous. I, 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 you know, I feel no shame at saying that. So the goal should be, yeah, how do you have these conversations without opening the space? And to me, it's it's about beyond anything else. It's about being like calm, but firm. You know, mm -hmm. it can be tough to do this when you feel the eyes of your allies on the back of your neck on both sides. If you're on the left and you're calm, but firm, sometimes people can get the impression that this is you're not being angry enough. Like, oh, how can you be calm? This person's a, a fascist. This person's a they hate immigrants, whatever. And you can get shit for that. And likewise, from the right, you know, and you can see this in any right-leaning form. These people are constantly performing their anger. They are c competing, one-upping each other all the time and how angry they are at the liberal establishment or progressives or Jews, depending on how far right the forum is. And I don't know how much of this they actually feel. I know a lot of it is sincere, but oh my God, these people are putting on like a performance in, in the truest sense of the word. It can be tough, but you have to move past that because you will never be able to do anything politically effective if your assessment of a situation is being weighed down on by the perceived expectations of your community. You have to be there in that moment to put your foot down and say, I will not accept this behavior, but I will not lash out at it because neither is productive. If, if, a, if a person on the right, whether they're approaching you online or in person, if they're challenging you or trying to cajole you over, you always have to be firm, you know? No, I don't believe this. I think these views are abhorrent. I can tell you why if you care to listen, but if you don't, I don't care to speak on them because freaking out doesn't make you look very good at all, you know? Yeah. It's, it's something like that. It's very contextual, but you can push for that. And there are spaces that are better about this. I see spaces on the left that are wildly incapable of engaging with people who are not even on the right. I see places on the left where they can't even engage with other leftists who are just less progressive than they are. Just just yesterday, ContraPoints was getting canceled about a joke lightly cajoling at like Gen Z queer people. And if, if we had like a woke meter, Contra is at like a 95 and there are people who are at 110 canceling her for it. And it's like, okay, good luck coalition building from there, you know? You also don't want to whitewash any of this. And I see plenty of communities doing that as well. I don't know if there's like a Goldilocks zone to this. It's just something we have to keep in mind. Man, when I first moved to Portland, I, uh, I went to a vegan bar and I had just moved here from Cincinnati, Ohio, which was like a whole different type of mentality. And I, I sat down and the people next to me started bashing and making fun of and giving a lot of hatred towards a friend of theirs because they were vegetarian and not vegan. And I was like, this is your ally. This is the person who is like closest to you, who is putting in the work, moving in your direction, like is helping you move to a, a world that you want to move to. And rather than like worry about the people who are, you know, doing factory farming, you're mad at the person who is close to you, but just not exactly like you. Like it, there's a weird rivalry that happens, I think, with uh, or like, it's, you know, it's proximity. You yeah, feel exactly. that they're so close that they can hear your words. Sometimes when you talk to people who have completely different ethical systems, like, like you know what I mean? Like they're so far off that you, you just feel up. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But when they're this close and I totally get that. And Lord knows I've done that too. Cause I argue with leftists plenty sometimes <laughs> over things I don't think are really worth arguing about, but we need to do better than that. At least we need to try to, it's something we should always keep in mind. Do you think there is an aspect of this that 
puts more of the impetus on, let's say, the white liberal. I mean, I hate really going to those terms, but there is an aspect where I feel like if you are somebody who's coming from a disenfranchised history or experience, it's more understandable that you would have a lot of frustration and anger and stress and that it'd be harder to stay calm when you feel really truly threatened, like your life is in danger. But then I see a lot of people, especially again in Portland, I'm just using my own frame of reference, um, who are like middle-class, well-off white people speaking on behalf of a lot of other people in a way that's like really angry and aggressive. And I can't help but think that they're kind of starting a war that they will be the last people to suffer from. God, yes. It's... Look, I think what, regardless of your race, gender, whatever, I think if you've got ideas, you have the right to speak in them. I'll never be one of those people who's like, this issue is best left discussed by a trans person of color or whatever. I'll never, if you've got good ideas, go for it. I don't care. I'll never care. And the left hates me for this, but this is what I believe. Yeah. However, it should be said that, say, people like me, I do speak from a position of privilege obviously a white guy who was born in beverly hills i mean fuck you'd have to be an <laughs> idiot to not look at me and think it's funny there are people on the right who will decry the idea of privilege but then they'll look at me and they'll be like beverly hills white boy like what do you think you're calling me out on when you insult me for that like you know what you're doing you, you know the concept exists um when you're in a position like this you know i do think that we sort of have a responsibility to leverage that position of authority if i was a black woman People, I would not have the channel size that I have now. That's not because all my followers are like racist or whatever and only like me because I'm white. It's just people tend to listen to people who look and sound like me more than people who don't, at least on most issues. So that's something I try to keep in mind and something that I try to recognize is a, a tool to be taken advantage of, which makes me good at what I do, which is talking to a lot of people in the far right um maybe they take me more seriously maybe they think i'm a race cuck or whatever whatever the product is there's one thing i don't really have the privilege of and it's getting mad you know yeah uh because if i i mean maybe a little mad fine but i should never allow it to get in the way of promoting the ideas that i do because if i do that i mean god how must that feel if you're like a non-white person like imagine watching me and i'm getting so worked up in a rage i can't even defend their beliefs and i then i go back to my six figure a year youtube job like what how what if as a general rule if you're even capable of arguing your positions online regardless of your race i feel like you have an obligation to uphold a certain standard of effectiveness because even if you're like black if you're getting like 20k likes per tiktok video you have more of an audience than most people will ever have in their entire life that's an awesome responsibility and it should be taken seriously that's a type of privilege the privilege of being listened to and how do you think that translates into things that are taking place on social media like free speech cancel culture and let's use for example like vaccine misinformation vaccine misinformation obviously there's a concern that we don't want people spreading really bad ideas with their platform if they have the 20,000 plus, you know, people who are paying attention to them. But you also said before, you know, that you want everybody to have a voice or have an opinion and be able to share it. How do we reconcile that kind of space between free speech and bad ideas and the insanely weird vi virality 
that the internet brings to all of this. Nothing has tested my beliefs on censorship more than the COVID-19 stuff, you know? Because yeah. it makes me wonder, like, imagine if the COVID-19 stuff, imagine if COVID-19 had been a little bit more virulent than it was. Imagine if it was as lethal as the Black Death, but much more difficult to treat. And every time misinfo spread, you could see the death count racked up in the hundreds of thousands or in the millions. I mean, at a certain point, and I try to think of everything in terms of consequences, you know, and I have to wonder how far does the extreme go? Would I let humanity die out? The only sentient species that I know of, you know, dolphins excluded, I suppose, would I let it extinguish because I was afraid of the consequences of silencing the people killing it through misinformation? Mm -hmm. And to me, I don't know if there's a hard line on this with the COVID misinfo stuff. Like the only people getting banned are people posting like obvious, objectively, factually incorrect stuff. I don't care about them at all. I hope their accounts rot in hell because there are death counts that are being racked up on account of this. You know, there's a broader consequence though. Like how do you, once you decide that's okay, how do you, decide when it's appropriate to implement that because the last thing you would want is like twitter banning people pointing out that like you know pointing out that like the the, the u.s president did something really bad like you know with the direct line between jen Psaki, you know biden's press mm -hmm. secretary and apparently social media that's not an unthinkable thing and i think that would be horrible so do we draw the line with nothing or do we try to like fight for the good but end the bad it's important to remember that to an extent this is the case with our jail system as well you know because after all the only difference between you and i being out of jail because we don't like murdering people and murderers being in jail because they do like murdering people is a set of ethical positions that not everyone on earth holds you know there are people in jail for murder who think that it's okay to murder people if they cheat on you they think that's morally right and the only difference between them being in jail and not is essentially our opinion. In reality, there are a lot of social institutions that we kind of set an arbitrary line at and passed, you know, like, and if it went too far to one side, we'd make 1984 arguments. But I mean, right. people have been making those for as long as people have been getting jailed. I don't know what the answer to this is. It's almost unfathomably complicated. Yeah, because my thought is, you know, in, in the unfortunate circumstance that the right, the, let's just say the government takes over uh, power in a way that gives them control over social media more or anything of that effect, then I see movements like Yes All Women and Black Lives Matter and like gay marriage and all of these things um, that I think gained a lot of their momentum from things like Twitter and from the internet uh, become things that could be just stamped out. You could just get rid of that hashtag and now you really kill the ability for people to self-organize and start fighting for some form of like equality or or rights and so it feels it's like terrifying if you, yeah and so if you say no to like co certain things of COVID information and you start becoming making it a norm for censoring that you do open that door maybe for some bad behavior down the line Undeniably, though there are things, of course, where political positions that almost nobody holds, but some do fit within like harassment guidelines. There are people who believe, for example, rape should be legal. Uh, I imagine it's not that many people, at least here in this, you know, here in, in the English speaking world, I would hope. But there are some <laughs> those people tend to get banned for harassment. If you go to a woman's like tweets and you're like, 
rape should be legal, blah, blah, blah. Like they'll get banned for harassment. You can report their tweets. They're expressing a political opinion. Likewise, with a lot of Nazi stuff, you know, uh, whether we're talking about the inherent superiority of the Aryan race or Jews generally and everything they believe about that group of people, these are political views that we've decided are so outside the Overton window. They're so heinously bad that we don't feel that bad about banning people for them. Or do we? Because now that conversation's coming back up, you know? And there are people who get banned for stuff like virulent anti-Semitism who are pointing out that this is like an unfair erosion of their right to speak freely on social media. It's really difficult to say. And it should be known, I'm not necessarily like a, a, in favor of the censors here because historically that's been used against us. The yeah. left has always been the greatest victim of censorship, at least here in the United States, because I mean, God, the Red Scare, McCarthyism, people didn't just lose their jobs. People got blacklisted from them by like government officials. It was insane. Yeah. And it happened for decades and decades. And that's far worse than anything happening on Twitter right now. But I know where these roads go. I also know the extreme path when the road is never taken at all, you know? And I, I I feel like I'm trying to say I have no idea in the smartest way possible. And I'm like failing utterly because I don't, it, well, I'll ask you then, I'll, I'll ask you, you know? Imagine you've got COVID 2022 and mm -hmm. it's far more deadly, far more virulent, virulent you know? And um, this, is, this is potentially an apocalyptic event. I mean, we're talking about like cities going dark, you know? In a situation like that, would you feel comfortable using any available power, the state, social media, anything, to silence people who are telling you that if you rub bleach on your asshole, then you don't have to take the vaccine? It'll, it'll cure you. You know, my instinct, I, I, my instinct is to go with you, with your answer and basically say like, I don't know. It's really complex, and you know, legitimately, if I could save a ton of lives by taking the power, it would feel like the right thing to do. But I do actually really fear the idea of giving that much power over to an entity and not respecting the individual uh the individual's capacity i guess to to think through things for themselves and i know i know that because of you know alienation because of uh wage slavery because of economic disenfranchisement because of stress and health issues it can be really hard for people who are being subjected to these things to think through them clearly but I also don't want to take this misanthropic stance that believes that they're not capable of making good decisions. And I want to assume, I guess, that these people will find their own good rationale and reasons for not um, doing a stupid medicinal practice rather than forcing their hand from the top. So I, I don't know if I'll change that stance in, in an hour. It's but... really difficult, right? Yeah. Because I, I don't know. I, I think about this almost every day when because this discussion is always being had on social media. Yeah. I don't know. The thing that bugs me, though, I guess more than anything, is that people won't have the conversation. You know, mm. they revert to dogmatism. You'll ask people like, well, how many deaths would justify intervention? And they'll be like, you want to take my free speech? Like, it's a real question. And nobody looks at it from the other side. They always think, you know, how much harm would be worth censoring X or Y when the reverse question is like, could you ask, how many gravestones would you have to walk past to think mm -hmm. I let these people die to preserve this guy's podcasts right to keep his 57th episode up, 
you know, where he said that the disease wasn't that big of a deal. Like when you think of it that way, like if you think of it in a very targeted way, like this phrase, this snippet of 16 words laid together cost this many rows in this graveyard, it gets a lot scarier. And then the question becomes, what's the difference between that and stochastic terrorism, where you can be arrested for calls to violence that you do through social media, depending on how it's phrased. The difference is stochastic terrorism never led to hundreds of thousands of deaths in the U.S., COVID denialism has. These are almost impossibly complicated issues. I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever really have a real answer for them. I only think that they're really serious. And I see a lot of unserious conversations being had on them. And that frustrates me more than anything else. Yeah, I think I just worry about putting barriers in the in the the social commons, you know, in the town square. And even even if the town square is now a amplified microphone that goes out to a million people, it still concerns me. I, I I can't help but be afraid of telling people they can't talk about certain things because mm. I really fear the road that that leads to. I mean, for instance, what's your thoughts on what's happening in Australia right now? I mean, that's kind of that. I think, uh, well, there's a critical difference between like social media TOS and the invocation of state power. I know there are some things that Australia is doing right now that are wild. And it seems like such an overreaction, too, because like they get as many cases as Florida alone has deaths. I mean, we're ta- like the 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 numbers are so off. I- I'm not necessarily opposed to state action to maintain quarantine because we've done this before with a bunch of other social disasters. I mean, imagine like warfare, right? right. If a country was under sea, like imagine if we got invaded by like Canada or something. I don't know. <laughs> Some warfare. Well, any time a country is invaded all the time in all of human history, the government immediately cracks down on some behaviors. That's not like a censorship thing. That's an immediate necessity of wartime. You have to Mm -hmm. prevent the spread of some information over others. The government will lie about troop movement to disguise what they're doing to the enemy. Uh, And we just accept this as par for the course. Or maybe we would. We haven't been invaded in a long time. So I, I don't know how that would happen in the modern era. But at a certain point, like the broader calculation like okay do you want your nation to always be vulnerable to warfare because you're incapable of shutting down podcasters talking about what your troops are doing i don't know i i <laughs> god it's um maybe maybe just demonetization would be enough maybe that's like sufficient you know because oftentimes the misinfo is spread because people profit from it if they just mm-hmm. got demonetized you're not really removing anyone you're not really censoring anything you're just saying like okay you can lie about COVID if you want just you're not going to make any money doing it. And I yeah. bet you that people would stop if that was a sufficient countermeasure. Yeah, that really brings things full circle in a way because that makes me think about the fact that a lot of the outrage and, and therefore the misinformation and the polarization is kind of fueled by the fact that a lot of people are looking for gigs or side jobs or fame and becoming influencers as a means to basically cope with the fact that capitalism failed them. And they need a they need a they need to get people scared and afraid or pissed off to get their attention so they can kind of exploit them. I mean, a lot of a lot a lot of like the influencer world in a way is another form of exploitation because they're saying I want to use my fame to get you to give me your money, and they will then become kind of disingenuous. I think about how they behave and the kind of things they put forward because they're more focused on that survival once they get that money than actually truth or 
justice. depending on depending on the size you are you know sure. if you're if you're like tucker carlson sized i mean you can roll in your money bath and the the, the incentives go away at that point but it often starts that way doesn't it i mean you see uh, what are today many of the biggest figures in like the idw they didn't start out that way they started out as young hungry journalists or political commentators a lot of them moved right with time i wonder if a lot of that has to do with the fact that with respect, it seems easier to produce content for the right than it does the left, you know, on the left. And, and this is like a fact. You can take a look at what videos get big views on either side. And on the left, it tends to be like thought, think pieces, video essays and like economic critiques, you know. And on the right, it is like SJW's owned compilation 72, you know, big tr trans woman, six foot two, marches into a building and says a mean thing. Like, that's what gets the big views. It's much easier. You do react commentary on, like, degeneracy, and that gets people going. And, well, I think that in a lot of ways, and this is not exclusive to podcasting or whatever, the profit motive can disincentivize responsible production of media um we see this with the news cycle as well the constant fear-mongering the 24-hour news cycle the sometimes the outright lying to justify the the keeping people's butts in seats maybe journalism and media creation is also something that we should look towards the decommodification of in the sense that maybe this would be should be something people do like out of a pure-hearted interest God, wouldn't we like that for everything? It's something to think about, at least, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish. And I mean, that's kind of why I, I do favor some of the ideas that you're putting forth is because I would love to see more people do things out of their pure pure interest, which leads me to actually think about like basic income. Have you thought much about basic income as a, a concept? And do you think it holds any value as either a transitional mechanism or an end game for the things you're fighting for? I think I'm I think I'm pretty I think I'm pretty favorable to it yeah. I think the idea that you have to work to live is pretty abhorrent to me in a world of unfathomable excess. The in terms of the productive capacity of the world, you know, we have as I understand it enough to meet the needs of every human at a roughly western middle class lifestyle. If you were to solve all of the problems of distribution and incentive, it would be about possible. Maybe not everyone could have air conditioning you know, there would be some like fringe cases where it wouldn't be possible to flatten everything. But billions of people live far, far, far below this. Almost everyone lives far, far, far below that. And a lot of it is just because we have a well, a lot of it is because of our economy. But a lot of it is also because we we believe there's like a moral need for people to work to live. Uh, we think people won't work if they're not threatened with starvation for doing so. Now, data has shown that's not the case. There have actually been studies on um, UBI or like types of welfare incentives and what effect they have on people's working. And the results are in, and it doesn't actually seem to affect it that much. Even if a person had all of their needs provided for by the state, it seems like overwhelmingly people still like working, or, or at least they want to. Maybe there are other benefits they can get by working. The more money means they can go to the theaters more often. Maybe they like the excuse for socializing. Maybe it's just a field they enjoy. All of these things are possible and they'll only become more possible the more tenable workplace enjoyment is, which also goes up with worker cooperatives. 
workers are way happier at cooperatives than they yeah. are at traditional firms by a huge margin. It seems like a bunch of interconnected issues. You know, people hate to work, so they don't want to work, which makes them less likely to work if their needs are provided for, which means that we're socially disincentivized from providing for people's needs, which makes them miserable, but hungry, which means they'll work longer hours for less. And it just, it all feeds into itself. And it's a cycle we can stop if we choose to with a lot of work. Hundred percent, and I and I don't think a lot of people want to be bored either. I think I think we lose sight of that really basic idea, which is for the majority of people, you don't want to sit on your ass all day and do nothing. Like I think it feels good to go create things and to work on things, and maybe the challenge there is that the or I guess the concern maybe from opponents of basic income is that. If you let people get to that point, then they'll only want to do things they enjoy and they won't do the, let's say, bullshit jobs that society needs to function. So do you think there has to be some kind of maybe automation uh, to get rid of some of the more menial jobs that the majority of people might not be finding themselves attracted to? Or do you think we can start that transformation now without having some kind of like uh, technology helping us along? Well, there's no denying that automation will help. The transportation industry, which I think is the biggest one in America still, that's going to be the first one up to go. We're probably within a decade of a significant portion of existing transportation workers being taken over by machines, which, by the way, that's good. You know, people I know that people lose jobs, but only in a system this insane would more work being done by fewer people be a bad thing. It's this is this is a, a, an objective good as long as the wealth is appropriately distributed. So. That would be good. You have like sewage drain cleaners and stuff. I mean, there are still going to be undesirable jobs, which to which I have two arguments. First, you can still incentivize people to do this work. Maybe it just pays more because there's so much less menial work to be done that the menial work that does remain. Maybe it would be a good thing for people who clean sewers to be paid as much as doctors are paid. I mean, it's hard work. It's socially necessary. Sewer cleaning is as socially necessary as doctors, by the way. If the sewers backed up, everyone would have cholera. Okay, we would, we, this is a absolutely, now it doesn't require as much expertise, admittedly, and you can argue about like paying back school bills or whatever, but at the, at the heart of it, it's something worth incentivizing. So we should. And you could also make the argument that with fewer jobs around, finding people to fill them wouldn't be as tough because there'd be a kind of social glory in doing so. There's a lot of busy work that people will invite upon themselves in the right communities if they know they'll be thanked for it appropriately. Yeah. Like in church, the guy who brings the chairs in, you know, I mean, he's lugging 40 chairs under his arms. Nobody wants to do that unless it's to impress the girls, but it gets done. Maybe there are types of work where you don't need to work 40 hours a day or a week, maybe, maybe 10 hours a week split between a couple of people who are valued in their community for putting that work forward. Maybe that could honestly be enough. And if people decide to stop doing it, you could kick in incentives or you could have some sort of backup system. It's possible. Yeah. Even, even regular work. I mean, people think like when they think like, um, in the post-communist world, what work will I do? And when you ask people this question, it's a very silly question, by the way, they'll always answer it with very, very dumb answers. You know, like, I'll be the group therapist. I'll be the artist. Okay, well, that's what everyone says. You can't have 5 billion therapists and artists. You need people making, you know, coffees at barista shops. But if work is fun, that can be fun. Yeah. Think of all that 
the the anime we have where people it's like cute girls doing cute things at a cafe job right if you're with friends anything is fun maybe the right kind of workplace and the right kind of workplace culture will make even menial jobs just like a summer camp i know mm -hmm. that sounds ridiculous like almost utopian but honest to god i've had jobs before where i loved everyone that i worked with and they were not that bad seriously they were i would have showed up to those jobs uh without being paid if their hours were less severe and if i had had some way of collectively controlling the managerial processes at that place i would have showed up just because i liked spending time with my friends yeah maybe you can build an economy off that or at least supplement that economy with that and i'm sure that that sense that you're alluding to there is helped along by knowing that your feet aren't to the fire so to speak financially where there isn't this thing of like if i don't perform great at this job today i could lose my house you know if, if you didn't have that weight of capitalism weighing over you at all times i think you could find more levity with your work um and and to that same point i mean i think we i think if you did have the automation freeing up a lot of capital then you could incentivize those jobs more and you could actually see uh competition for the less favorable positions because people would be excited about striving or making more money i guess um by having them paid more for those positions but then i guess that comes into does that come into an issue where you're just reinforcing class at that point i guess that's a question i could throw your way is like how do we do that incentivization if we want to keep the hierarchy flat oh well, i think flattened to the extent you can there will always be hierarchies of expertise for example you know when it comes to like running a hospital i have like the doctors will of course have more of a say i mean you know sometimes you need that expertise especially with affairs of government or technocratic enterprises um but with regards to like how to appropriately incentivize this you know it's i'm not so worried about pay differences you know that's not a huge deal to me because the real problems arise not when people are paid different amounts but when they have different material interests mm -hmm. uh when people who are sufficiently wealthy or those who control the means of production they own a business or two their interests are different to uh non-wealthy persons in the society we live in now because through the tax structure and through the ways in which they gain their wealth through the employment of others their odds their needs are opposite to those of the worker the business owner or the worker have literally opposite desires one seeks to maintain the highest profit possible while paying as low of wages as they can and the other seeks to gain the highest wages as possible uh, at the expense of any profit that doesn't close the business and this is a negotiation where the business owner has uh, the entire deck stacked in favor of them just because of the way these things work. So just people being different levels of wealth, yeah, it's more acceptable to me. We should think, though, and like with regards to how to incentivize people's work, you know, if you look back through the eras before capitalism, what would people be willing to do for non-monetary incentives? I mean, you have stories of people who were killing each other for glory what is glory nobody dies for glory in the modern world i don't know i don't even know what that means but they would kill each other over it people would go samurai would would if they failed their masters would go on pilgrimages they would spend their lives wandering the countryside as ronin they would kill themselves if they failed in the wrong ways there are clearly human drives powerful human drives that go beyond mere subsistence living that go beyond simply 
I need cheeseburger, thus I must work for money. There are powerful incentives within us and they're all social to make people happy, to be valued in the community, to honor yourself and your family. Some of these are more or less toxic. I'm not saying they're all like amazing incentives. I don't want anyone disemboweling themselves because they like dropped a McDouble on the ground while, while trying to bring it over at their worker co-op. I'm only saying that I think that we have, through capitalist realism, through the idea that there can be nothing but what we live with now, erased the idea that there are other ways of getting people to do things besides just giving them a meager wage and telling them that if they don't work it, they're going to have to live in Section 8 housing. We're better than that. Yeah, which seems like we, at that point, in addition to the infrastructure, the economic model, we really need a cultural narrative shift that moves away from celebrating rich people as the success or the thing to strive towards and that favors more people who are like actualizing themselves or doing something great like god yes yeah what is an american hero i ask you if you look at the cultures of any other and i mean even european countries i don't just mean non-western any other culture their heroes their archetypes their storied figures are what well, usually they follow the hero's journey, right? You have people who have lost something precious to them, they fight for it, and it involves their actualization or glory or power or something. But there's a lesson in that. Like even even like Byronic figures where they sacrifice everything. But in America, we worship celebrities and tech billionaires. They we do we worship them. We do. That's not at all an unfair word. It, success in America is monetary and nothing else. We don't have the equivalent of like in many Southeast Asian cultures, for example, like their nomastic monks or the people who have sacrificed, you know, material gain in favor of spiritual understanding of the world. We have no such thing in America. The closest thing we have to spirituals here are evangelical Christians, and they all shop at the Mall of America and they tell you that you're sinning against Jesus if you don't spend enough money on made in America products. We have nothing like that here. There are other ways to celebrate the human spirit than through commercialism, but we are honest to God, this country sucks when it comes to that. This is part of the reason why people are so depressed, you know. Nobody was ever made happy by buying the shiny Subaru. You get a brief glint of satisfaction followed by several years of a high-quality car performing, you know, fine, that's good, but in terms of happiness, satisfaction, these things can't come from buying anything. They come from feeling needed by your community they come from setting goals and achieving them yeah there's there's a i do i do psychology research in graduate school and there's a theory called the self-determination theory and actually the three things that it focuses on is uh, relatedness which is connection with community competence which is some form of mastery or expertise and autonomy so the freedom to, to to move and pursue these things and the things that we've seen over and over again in the research is that when you have extrinsically motivated factors, things like money, fame, status, and all of these things, people are significantly less happy than intrinsically motivated factors, which is like self-actualization and that d- deeper sense of connection with other people and, and self and your own place in the world. And as you're talking about that, it makes me think that if you have this celebrity-obsessed worshiping culture and people try to emulate that, then they find themselves 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the line with no emotional toolkit and no personal growth as a foundation to stand upon and the capitalistic systems dropped out below them and now they're going in on to social security and retiring. And This is what the death of the salesman was about. Mm-hmm. The death of the salesman, this 
this depressed, this miserable, this dishonest, you know, workaday man who couldn't meet the expectations he had set for himself. So he kills himself. This was considered, by the way, seditious anti-American propaganda when it was released. It was. There were calls to censor it because it laid true or, or, or I guess laid bare the reality of many people's lives, which was that they were deeply unsatisfied with the narrative that was given to them, that being a man and I guess just being an American was about consumerate success. And this ties back into everything. A lot of it is tied into the Protestant work ethic. You know, one of the reasons why the, um, the Christians in, in the South were so intent on reading the Bible to their slaves, well, they wouldn't read it themselves. They'd get someone else to read it. But, you know, th having the, the, the Bible be read to the slaves um, was because one of the tenets of Protestant Christianity that was really popular at the time was the Protestant work ethic. And they, if they could convince the slaves that there would be a material reward for them in heaven if they worked hard now as a slave, they would work harder. It was a cynical bid at making the slaves more productive because they would hope that after they died, they got something for it. And this to me is maybe the most cynical, but not the most dissimilar example of what we're taught today, you know? It yeah. feels pretty close to what we're told just, well, I'm not a slave, but you know. Yeah. But that level of enculturation that ends up kind of undermining your happiness is very relevant. And it's, and I know there, I know personally people who struggle with this, They mostly men because they feel they should be the breadwinners. So it still happens to women and it's happening more now with women than it did before because they are now in the workplaces and accepted in the workplaces, but mostly with men. And it feels like there's no solution to it either because there's a material threat to that propaganda. It's true. If you work hard, you are less likely to end up poor. It's not a perfect correlation. We don't live in a meritocracy, but it's something. Working hard is more likely to get you something as opposed to what am I offering? Spiritual fulfillment? How do I even offer something like that? I can't give them a numerical assessment of the alternative. So it's meaningless. It's nothing compared to something you can see digitally accrue in a bank account. So we have generation after generation of lost, lonely, unfulfilled people who are being philosophically ennobled to any criticisms of capitalism. And it's really depressing, you know? Yeah. And without some kind of route or avenue to escape capitalism, you pretty much have to either succumb to it or play the game. Like you either have to start turning your life into just a work obsessed grind or you just kind of succumb and give up and stay depressed and impoverished yeah but but <laughs> to be fair things are getting a little bit better at least for some younger people because i think they're growing more aware of this cynicism about consumer culture and conspicuous what's it, uh, commodity uh, consumption is uh definitely becoming more common with like the Gen Z types and like millennials and stuff. And while it's not making them any wealthier or maybe not making them any happier, I have hope that within the coming decades, there will be a broader zeitgeist against those ideas and maybe something more positive will come of it. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll make a culture shift, man. I want to let you get to your uh, food. I know we're coming up on an hour here. Um, I, did I can go take... for a little longer if you'd like to. Yeah, well, I took a few questions, uh, interestingly enough, from the IDW Discord community. Um, oh, brilliant. Would you be interested in just fielding a few of those and we can see how they go? Absolutely. Throw them at me. All right. Let me see here. So I'll just jump into one of the first ones came to mind. So uh, username John Line 
asks, given the negative way that things seem to have gone in Minneapolis, how would you change the approach to defunding the, the defunding the police? So I think that with regards to defunding the police, this the push for that message was handled, unfortunately, because it's a radical proposition with sensible interpretations, but radical propositions are never interpreted sensibly when they're exposed to the public in the way that these were. When it comes to what we should do with defunding the police, we should focus on replacing what they do with other groups that have different incentives to behavior than police do. What I'm about to say is unfortunately a fact. It's not every police officer, but many of them do think of themselves as warriors in besieged territory. It's a whole component of police training, you know, wolves among sheep, that they are patrolling not to protect the community, but to oust from it elements criminal or nefarious. And this can be really destructive because it destroys the idea of community policing, which has historically been well, a safer, happier, healthier way of protecting communities. And it also leads to more negative police altercations. Police murders in this country, like when police murder people, far more common here than in other countries. Uh, but what a lot of people don't talk about is violent police altercations, where if you look at that number, this is like multiplied a thousand times over. For every cop who shoots some black kid or whatever, there are a thousand black kids accosted meaninglessly by the police as evidenced yeah. by numbers that we see with like, yeah, yeah, stop and search and a lot of the behaviors that police are taught to engage in. So what we should do is try to find ways to leave, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Let the police do what they do best. And what the police do best is handling dangerous situations. That's why they have the best secondhand military equipment in the world so they can handle that kind of stuff but the vast majority of what the police do isn't responding to that more than 90 percent of what they do is responding to non-violent stuff and there are cities that have implemented community like workers social workers doing stuff police often do and seen positive results with no deaths thus far it's not about like keeping guns out of the hands of people or whatever i don't think that having a gun necessarily makes a cop like a worse actor on a social stage than a social worker. It's just that, look, police are in a really weird place in this country right now. It's just the vibes are off. Maybe we can work on spreading the load. And that would make cops' lives easier, by the yeah. way. They would have to do far, far less work. Uh, and I know how overworked they are because I've had cop friends. So I, I with sympathy, I say, let the, the, the burden be spread out a little bit. Also, a social worker is way cheaper than a cop is between training, equipment, storage, all that stuff. It's way easier to put a social worker out than a police officer. Yeah. Do you think there's anything to be said, though, for the fact that you don't know if a situation is going to become dangerous and that you could be sending somebody who is uh, untrained or maybe incapable uh, into a situation that they can't handle? Yeah, 100%. We need more data more than anything yeah. else because on the spectrum of things that are probably safe to probably dangerous, right now we're putting all of them in the police category. There has to be like some fuzzy line we can draw where, because look, pizza delivery people often go into dangerous situations, you know? We don't send them in with guns. They die at twice the rate of police officers. I'm not saying we should Is just- Is that a real stat? I think so, yeah. Wait, it could oh, be two shit. different, hold on, wait. Uh, <laughs> pizza delivery driver deaths. Uh, according to the borough's website, of the five and a half thousand total workplace fatalities in America, delivery drivers made up 1,005 of them. Holy shit, a fifth of the total number. That's just in 2019. Whereas 
in 2019, only 89 cops died in the line of duty. Never mind, it's 11 times as high for police. I'm oh, sorry, for, for pizza delivery people as police. Damn. So, and that's why you should tip your drivers. The the So we would never argue police should be delivering pizzas. There's clearly a line we can move over to, 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 to handle this more sensibly. And will people die during this? Undeniably, but they would anyway. People are already dying. The system is already killing people all the time. That's the chaos of life. Yeah, we need to find a way to minimize those deaths. And I honestly think that a healthy community policing system would overall lead to less conflict on the streets. It would drive things better in the future. Wonderful. Let's try another one. Um, Miss Fishman. What are your thoughts on the uh, American founding fathers who started the revolution? Um, I don't know. I mean, they did some really cool stuff. I, I admire them for their drive, if nothing else. You know, I wouldn't have had the balls to do <laughs> some of the shit they did. There's, I often think like there's this, there's this need in America to like venerate the founding fathers. If I look back through history, can you find me historical figures who weren't pieces of shit one way or another? Look into Gandhi, look into Mother Teresa. These are not like, you would be weird champing the hell out of them if these people were alive today. Even MLK with the wife beating thing, you can go back further than that. There are no saints through history. Did the founding fathers do a lot of really fucked up stuff? Yeah. Were they monstrous slave owners? Yeah, a lot of them were. But I don't think of it as like a moral assessment of their character. They're not people anymore. They're parts of history. And as men who had more of an influence on history than most, I think they should be considered with respect to the influence they've had in the present rather than the moral character they personally possessed some people they do this reverse with columbus right like columbus was a monstrous person he was censured for genocide in his time he killed tens of thousands of people cut people's hands off for not doing workloads properly stuff like that he was a monstrous person even back at the time they told him that he went too far yeah but i don't i mean if i were to like tell my kids about columbus i don't know if i'd go into all that i would just say like you know, he discovered America and he did like some bad stuff, but whatever. It, to me, it's just not about who they were as people. Like, what are the echoes of their lives doing today? And we have America. And as much as this country sucks, I live in it. So that's the consequence. I was born because of all that. Yeah. And there does seem a little bit of like moral hindsight uh, superiority or narcissism here, I guess, in the sense that if you look back at these people in history for their time, it they were working with a set of beliefs and principles and virtues and, and and morality that is much different than we have now so to use your current modern day lens to judge them does seem potentially a bit unfair yeah i think it's i'm not a cultural relativist so i think that from today's perspective i'm comfortable condemning them i guess i'm just mm -hmm. curious like why no what we should do is be truthful with the history right so there are people tearing down statues of George Washington or whatever. I don't really care about that at all because it's not actually about George Washington. It's a refutation of the way in which his image is used today. And there are a lot of people who lie about George Washington and other historical figures like Columbus by promoting them as these like moral virtuous saints or whatever, which is flatly not true. And when you're trying to tear down their statues, it's not really about them, the people. It's about attacking the broader myth of american supremacy right. that gets pushed in some of these circles so the conversation is always a little more complicated than just the moral character of the figure themselves it's about you know how they're used how they're weaponized it's, it's drawing attention to the fact that like hey we're trying people have been brushing under the rug the fact that these people did own slaves and did 
things that were fucked up and to yeah, not acknowledge that is if you're lying about that or if you if you ignore that because it's convenient historically i think that is really bad you know so i, I guess i'm okay with that anger i think that anger is, is cool you know yeah let's do at least one more if, you, if you're good um For sure. i got one from joe parish he actually runs the uh idw uh server um he said he's been yeah, yeah. He said he's been active in the Democratic Party and progressive politics for about half his life. He's currently 29 and it saddens him, but he's found that the American left is better at cannibalizing itself than expanding its coalition through the virtue and appeal of its ideas. Is there a solution to this? And do you have any mind? I think we touched on this before, but maybe you can still take that. No, it's uh, it, it's it's true. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a problem that I've always had with the left. It's certainly online. I mean, far more online than in person. In person, left organizers tend to be like 50-something, 60-something like union types, you know, and they're cool for the most part. Online, though, it gets into this purity cycling thing. And to me, I think the big thing that causes that is the conflation between a political movement and a social space. A lot of people online don't have a lot going for them. This is on the right and the left, by the way. Uh, there are a lot of sad people out there but they have strong political opinions. So of course they gravitate towards others with those opinions. And what they've found then is a social group, a community they feel a part of, but a community they want to be a part of is not the same thing as a political movement. My social community, my group is, I guess my stream, which I cultivate directly because I control it, and my IRL friends, that's it. I am not friends with the left and they would readily make that apparent if they were here to defend themselves against me. Uh, but so many people make this conflation. They draw the political movement into their community and then assume they should police the political movement by the community's standards, which is dumb. Social groups can be policed and that's fine. If you don't want to be friends with a person, cool. Don't be friends with them. Be mean to people you don't like. Be incredibly, if you only want to be friends with trans black people, fucking go for it. That is your God-given right, okay? But if you're, if you're then like, you know, you're in the left, you're like, well, the left doesn't want non-black, non-trans people. Well, okay, hold on now, wait. Yeah. It's only so many of you. I don't know if you're going to win numbers-wise. It's, it's, that's the problem that I have. It's lonely people online who conflate the two. And we should push back against that by making it easier to form subgroups within the online left so that you don't feel like you have to be friends with every single person who is considered a part of the left in order to be consistent with your social community, you know? Yeah. I'm going to give you one more. Hit me up. Okay. We got one from uh, Agro All Destroyer. Um, his, his one's got a little bit more nuance here that I'll try to do justice. Um, he's saying, given that you seem to be a market socialist, how do you think socialism addresses the commodification of the person that seems to be inherent uh, an inherent part of social media. So I think his point here is that information as a commodity and people as a commodity um, kind of falls outside the purview of the typical materialistic aspects of market socialism. Yeah, I think I think this might just be a human problem because if you, I mean, was Christ not one back in his day? If you go back further than that, you know, like uh, it, it, it seems like our tendency, we, we right now we commodify people, but before we commodified anything, we still had those people and their words still spread as a commodity would, you know, I wonder if that's just a part of the human condition, it might be an inherently hierarchical nature or, or element of our nature, in that it is a um, 
in the same tools that allow us to form social groups deny us the ability to ignore the rise of people who exist outside the community but spread through it anyway maybe mm -hmm. that's just part of how we are because i mean after all politics couldn't really exist without that right broader civilization building could not have happened unless people were able to become icons in and of themselves to spread beyond their community and to the communities around to form something greater a, a village or a nation i think though in terms of what we can do to address the element of commodification present now like how we can sort of ameliorate the worst excesses of those tendencies i feel like honestly i feel like this might be a mental health issue you know because there are some types of people whose words will always be captured and commodified priests preachers politicians generals there's just by the nature of their role you know but what we have right now is this more sinister interpersonal weird parasocial thing going on with youtube and the podcasts and, and the everything where people like ninja or markiplier or pewdiepie you know they're in your fucking home you, you if you're a kid too and you see them on your screen i mean they're right there especially if you're too young to really get it all there's no difference between calling your dad on on zoom and seeing like a video put out by a youtuber you just see their face and they're talking yeah and even when you get older, even if you're smart enough to know the difference, there are still psychological uh, ramifications to this type of association. There are adults in my community who have parasocial relationships with me. And I think a lot of this boils down to people having a harder and harder time making friends in their real life. So they turn towards the influence of people online. I had a moment like that once, actually. I I've never been the type of person to have a huge number of friends because I can't keep contact with all of them. I'm just one of the people who's fine with like a handful of close friends. But there was a time where I didn't have that, where I didn't have any friends, uh, or at least I had very few. And I was very sad. And I recognized that during that time, at least in retrospect, I was so much more invested in like online content creators during that time. It wasn't just nowadays when I watch them, I think that was a funny video. And my brain, that's it. That's my brain's done. But when I during that time when I was very lonely and I saw those content creators, it wasn't just that. It was, oh my God, they're so funny. You know, I bet we would get along. These thoughts appeared involuntarily in my head. I didn't realize what they were at the time, but it was parasocial delusion, a fever in my, in my mind, a product of poor mental health. So I think if we can work on that at its ground level, maybe we can make us all a little less susceptible to these issues. Also, don't let six-year-olds watch YouTube. Oh my God, just put on, find DVDs or something. Don't put them on YouTube. Oh God, it's so, it's so weird. <laughs> don't, don't raise your kid on YouTube because there's nothing you can do with that. I mean, they're too vulnerable to yeah. get anything that's going on. I'm thinking of Jim Carrey and uh, Cable Guy. Is it just sitting there being forced to watch the TV as a kid? Yeah, there are kids raised on their iPads now. That yeah. was, did you see Bo Burnham's special? Uh, Inside? Uh, Inside? Yeah. You know the song? Um, what was it? You know, um, your mom gave you your iPad. You were barely two. And it did oh, all yeah. the things we designed it to do. I mean, yeah. Unironically, yes. And, and terrifying, by the way. Well, yeah. And then who do you think is going to parent that kid when you're, if you're not there and then they have 
these other figures that they're seeing facial features. I mean, if you're a, if you're a baby or a child and you are given a screen to look at for six hours a day, and that's where you see human faces and features, and you're learning how to like and be the a human language they use and the 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 behavior would be kids being like, you know, make sure to like and subscribe. They say goodnight to their parents that way because they think that's just what you say when you're saying goodbye to a person. Um, that's a thing that's happened, by the way. Uh, don't uh, tell me you, that <laughs> you imagine yeah no right uh, yeah what a wake-up call i guess i don't know so, now i'm being a little reactionary here sure a lot of this is weird i don't know how much of it is harmful i know at least some of it is i don't know if all of it is um the parasocial stuff is harmful i know that kids developing odd mannerisms because they've been raised by the internet is not inherently bad it just probably is i just this goes into the worker co-op thing too you know smaller businesses, community organizing, community policing, know the people at your local shops, have stores nearby that give you something only that store can give you, rebuild communities. And if you do all of that, people are going to go outside more often, people are going to want to go to work. All of this is it's like this pyramid of mental health that's being chipped away at brick by brick, because it's much more economically efficient to have everything being done by like Amazon and big, big box stores. Yeah. But and community all... parenting, though, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We used to be raised by villages, you know, like the tribe used to raise kids. And now it's two parents and two parents can't raise a kid. That's not enough people. That's not even close to Especially enough. Especially if they're not at work all day because yeah. they have to. They have to work. And there's even if they're wealthy and can stay at home, you want the first five years of your kid's life for them to only recognize two faces. That's not how humans were meant to be. We, we grew up in villages. We were carried in little little backpacks on the, the titties of our moms and walked around and we played with the other babies and we can do that we can have all of that we just need to appropriately allocate social resources and think of the herculean supermen that'll be produced by a combination of the superb mental health that you could have with a properly arranged society and all of the medical and technological and scientific and academic advancements of today they will be gods compared to us we're all neurotic degenerate internet weirdo schizos and they're all going to be lumbering around seven feet tall with bulging muscles men and women you know uh chiding us for our inability to stare at the sun directly that's the future okay and we can build it i i think that's the perfect place to stop i don't want to i don't want to deviate from that as a stopping point i want to thank you man this has been an awesome conversation i am super happy we got to have it and there are so many more things we could talk about but uh you need to eat. And this was already so much good stuff. So thanks again, man. No, I, I had a wonderful time. I appreciate the, um, the conversation. I'm delighted that you tolerated my rambling and uh, you have my email. So hit me up sometime in the future. Maybe we could go for a, a part two. Yeah, man. I'd love to. Sounds good. Well, enjoy your meal and I'll chat with you soon. Have a good one. Thanks, man. Mm -hmm.